Amen. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Yes. Yes. Hey, fatherhood is essential to God's design, not only for creation, his church, and all of his purposes and plans. When men are missing in action, when mature men are missing in action, dysfunction reigns, not only in our culture, but in our churches. And so we want a prayer, a dedication, a prayer of commitment for our dads, and not just dads, granddads, but really, in general, the men here in our church. And so, guys, let's take to heart 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, which says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. As a church, let's join our hearts together and and let's just pray this scripture over our men. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what a privilege it is to come before you, the sovereign creator of all, and address you as Father. It is no small thing that you who rule over everything are also near to hear our deepest and even our most silent heart cries. And so, Father, we come before you on behalf of our fathers and really our men in general, Lord, and we pray this verse over their lives. We pray, Lord, that our men would stay alert in prayer, that on our knees, Lord, we would Watch over what's happening in our hearts. We would ask you, as David did, search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way within. And Lord, we would set a guard on those things around us, around our spouse, if we are married, around our children, if we have them. Lord, we pray that we would be spiritually alert. Lord, may nothing Nothing, even good things, come between us and you. And it all starts in our heart. Father, I pray that we would stand firm in your word because we don't know what to pray and we don't know if there's deception if we're not in your word. I pray that we would be men of the word, that we would believe the gospel, stand on the gospel, and remain firm in sound doctrine. I pray, Lord, that we would not waver in our biblical beliefs and we would have integrity in our behavior. That our walk would match our talk. That our integrity gap between what we believe and how we live would be shrinking instead of growing. And Lord, we pray that we would step forward in obedience and act like men. Not men as a caricature or a stereotype, but men who take the initiative to do your will, to, to protect, to provide, to support. Lord, we pray that we would not shrink back in fear. We would not be passive as men. We would not drown in discouragement. We would not stay defeated. We would not sink into depression. But Lord, you can resurrect us out of all of that if we will only sink, seek strength in you.
if we would be strong in you. Lord, may we as dads, as men, as granddads, may we strengthen ourselves in you, our God, like King David did. And Lord, above all, as this verse tells us, may we saturate everything that we do in love. As men, may we remember it's not so much what we do, it's how we do it. Are we doing it from love, with love, and for love of you and those around us? Lord, put to death our selfishness, bury it with Christ in the grave, and raise us up in Christ as men who love like you did. We're so thankful, Lord, that you haven't given us a profile of manhood. You've given us a person in your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the man, the true and better man, who exemplifies and empowers us to walk in his steps. May we do that, O Lord. And may any man here realize that no past failure, no current Uh, discouragement can hinder us from right now, right here, making a commitment to be the men that you have designed us to be, to be the men that you have saved us to be in Christ. Oh God, may we as a church pray for the men, pray for the fathers. May we, Lord, support one another to be the men that Jesus is. May we be Christ-like. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. It's an understatement to say that trials and sorrows have plagued our country in recent days, recent weeks, and even the last few months. Many people across our nation feel as if they have somewhat reached their breaking point and even beyond. The curse of the fall has been evident in painful ways. Lives have ended that should not have. The great intruder of death has reared its ugly, uninvited head. Equally uninvited has been financial ruin, physical injury, destruction of property, anxiety, fear, emotional distress... Closure of store and services due to civil unrest and riots, not to mention the coronavirus that has impacted our cities and country in unprecedented ways. And so truly, these last few months have been replete with, if I can use the term of Genesis, thorns and thistles. Some have experienced immense pain. Now, the world's answer to such problems, to such sorrow, trials, and pain is to craft solutions by strengthening governments, legislating reforms, intensifying protections and restrictions, protesting injustices, defunding police, increasing humanitarian aid, and the list goes on and on. But while the world is simply treating these symptoms, the root problem still remains the same. It remains untreated. Thankfully, though, listen, our God provides great hope 
in Jesus Christ, the one who will one day right all the wrongs that we see across our country and world. And so as we resume our series in the book of Ruth here this morning, here's the one key truth we're going to see. I hope you take it home with you and notice it. What the whole world needs is a kinsman redeemer to rescue us from our sins. Now, before you dismiss that as just a Sunday school answer or a church answer, listen, this is the core answer to the core problem of humanity. The Bible identifies the world's great need in Romans 3.23 when it tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the world's great need is not economical, it's not political, it's not social, it's not racial reconciliation. It is spiritual in nature and at the core of the problem. And it affects the whole world. Why? Because, as Paul tells us here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here is the great news. What the whole world needs, God provides. The next verse in this passage, Romans 3.24 says, We are justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Later on in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, In Him, that is in Christ, we have what? Redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And so today, what I simply want to do is show you and let you see from God's Word here in the book of Ruth how God's provision to the world's great need applies to First of all, to Ruth in this story, and then to all of us here today. So notice this, two simple points. First of all, number one, Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And so what the whole world needs is God provides, and God provides a kinsman redeemer. In fact, we might even uh, subtitle this, what every dad needs here this morning, God provides. And that is a kinsman redeemer. Redeemer. Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Now, you may remember at the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth and Naomi have hit rock bottom in their lives. But by the end of chapter 2, they have found grace at the bottom of the barrel. Because of God's grace at work in Ruth and Naomi, they are now moving from emptiness to fullness, from sorrow to joy, from bitterness to blessedness. And in a sense, they are now illustrating the very theme of the whole book of Ruth. And that is, if you want to find hope in a fallen world in which that's where we live, then what do we need to do? Turn to God for hope. And so when Ruth went to, with Naomi back to Bethlehem, food was not the only thing that Ruth lacked in her life. Listen, she had not only turned from her family and false gods to follow the one true living God, she had also, in a sense, with that choice to follow God back to Bethlehem, she had also given up by all human appearances the prospect of marriage. And a home of her own. And even though she now had food in Bethlehem through the generosity of Boaz, what Ruth still needed was a husband to rescue her from her widowhood. Now, why do I say that? Because the book of Ruth emphasizes this need. It highlights it for us. You see this in verse 23. 
the last verse of chapter 2, when it says, and she, that is Ruth, dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now, why state the obvious of what we already know? Well, because that simple remark highlights the fact that one need in her life still remained. And so by emphasizing the fact that Ruth was not living with a husband, what the author of this book is doing is preparing us for what's getting ready to happen next in the story through Boaz as her kinsman redeemer. Now that brings us to a a question. What is, after all, a kinsman redeemer? That's not terminology we use every day. So let's talk about that just for a few minutes here. Naomi, it's interesting, first used this term in reference to Boaz after Ruth returned from gleaning in his fields in verse 20 of Ruth chapter 2 where it says, The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. And then Ruth herself actually uses this same term in chapter 3 when she and Boaz met on the threshing floor in verse 9 where it says, Who are you? He asked her. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer now kinsman redeemer what is the role of that of that kinsman redeemer well the hebrew word for kinsman redeemer is goel goel which simply means to buy back or to redeem and this role was fulfilled by a near relative for the purpose of protecting the family property or the family name But this role of a kinsman redeemer, specifically in the Old Testament, is predicated on one key truth throughout all the Old Testament. And that is this, that the land, the promised land, the land given to God's people, the children of Israel, always belongs to God because he created it. You see, as the rightful owner, the land God gave the Israelites was a gift to them or a trust to them. And as a gift, the land was not to be used only for personal advancement. Indeed, what God promised them all along is that he would bless them. He would bless Israel's working of the land for the provision of their own needs, but this was not to consume their attention or their priority or their passion in life. Why? Because they were God's people. They had been redeemed by God out of bondage in Egypt. And now they were to live as witnesses to those outside of the nation of Israel. They were to live as a witness to God's grace so that other nations would know the one true God. Like Ruth came to know the one true God. And so for this reason... The land was to be a, we might say it this way, a stage of ministry to one another within the community of God's people, as well as an opportunity to meet the needs of those outside of God's family, thereby making the land, the promised land in this case, a stage for missions to all the other nations of the world. Now, as you might imagine, a family share 
of the promised land played a significant role in Israel's history. In fact, uh, you, you begin to read the Old Testament, specifically beginning in, in Exodus and then the, the books later on after that, especially in Judges. And the land is critical to God's people. Major important. It's also critical to God's redemptive plan. And even today, the occupation of this specific land is still a major focus in our world events and in our news. But life in a fallen, sinful world also holds no guarantees. We're living that out even now. We see it on our news. And so God instituted laws for the children of Israel to protect private property from forced and or permanent loss, such as if if an Israelite could not meet his financial obligations, he more than likely would have to sell some or maybe all of his property and then hire himself out to work for someone else. By selling his land, a poor man did not cease, though, to be the rightful owner of the property. The law, that is the law for God's people in the Old Testament, the law forbade the permanent sale of one's land and actually the transfer of ownership. You say, well, how is that? You may have heard the law of Jubilee, that term. term. The The law of Jubilee stated that every 50 years in Israel's history, all debts were canceled and all property was returned to the original owners. This was God's way of wiping the slate clean and giving everyone a fresh start. But during the intervening 49 years, the best option of recovering one's land was through, get this, a kinsman redeemer. And so there are two specific situations in which Boaz now acted as a kinsman redeemer in the life of Ruth. Notice the first situation. It was the redemption of property. A kinsman redeemer might reclaim a field that had been sold in time of financial distress. In fact, this specific law is found in Leviticus chapter 25. I won't take time to read it, but uh, it is this redemption of property which now underlies some of the story in Ruth chapter 4. And so we have this redemption of property by Boaz, but number two, a second of all, we have the redemption of name. A kinsman redeemer might marry a relative's widow to care for her and have a child. Now, under certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer had an obligation to marry the widow and raise up a child for a brother or even another relative who had died childless in order to continue the family name. And that's what's going on here in the story of Ruth. This strange law, as it might seem to us, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. You can read about it later. Now, obviously, there were... Plenty of loopholes Boaz could have slipped through to absolve himself of any legal responsibility when it came to marrying Ruth, if he so wished. But Boaz, get this, he was not concerned simply with the obligations of the law. He had a heart that had been touched by God's grace. And so now his heart overflowed with grace 
to those around him. This is why Naomi rejoices to learn that Boaz is the one, is the man who helped Ruth. Remember when she went out to glean in the fields? She just coincidentally happened to land in Boaz's field. Coincidentally, it was divine coincidence. Because in Ruth's own words, that man, Boaz, he is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. And as we shall see later on, Boaz came to the defense of Ruth and Naomi in order to protect their family and preserve their inheritance. Now, here's what you've got to understand. Getting involved as a kinsman redeemer would cost Boaz greatly. There was a sacrifice on his part. But showing grace, it trumped personal sacrifice. Why? Because Boaz had experienced God's grace in his own life. He knew God had rescued him from his sin and given him a share of the promised land. And so now Boaz wanted to do the same for Ruth and Naomi. But here's what's really amazing about all this. The redemption of property and name by Boaz, what it's doing in the Old Testament here, it is pointing us forward. It is pointing us ahead to something much greater, much grander, for even us here today. And that is namely the redemption from sin that is accomplished by Jesus Christ. You see, what Naomi and Ruth needed most was not just a redeemer to rescue them from their earthly poverty. Nor even a husband to rescue Ruth from her widowhood. Rather, what they both needed most What the whole world needs most was a heavenly redeemer to rescue them from their sin. And that's exactly what God provides for them in Jesus Christ. You see, what the whole world needs, God provides. Just as Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer, what we see, what this story points us to look forward to, which has already been accomplished for us now, so we look back while they look forward, is that Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Again, we all need a redeemer because the Bible teaches that our greatest problem is sin. Because we are in bondage to sin and separated from God. We desperately need a redeemer to rescue us. But it won't be by your parents. It won't be by your spouse. It won't be by your friends or even the government. Listen, Jesus Christ is the only one qualified to be our redeemer. Now, let me just take you through why that's the case. Not that you don't already believe it. Most of you that are here, if not all of you, you do believe this. But why? Let me show you this. Number one, why Jesus fulfills the role of our kinsman redeemer, just as Boaz fulfilled the role of kinsman redeemer for Ruth. First of all, Jesus is my nearest kin through his incarnation. You see, in order to qualify as a kinsman redeemer, a man had to be kin. Or, in other words, our terminology, we would say, Uh, A close relative. This is why God sent his son Jesus to take on human flesh when he was born. And Jesus, as you know, was the perfect God-man. 
And as man, he qualifies as our human relative. And as God, he qualifies as a perfect, sinless redeemer. The Bible describes Jesus' incarnation in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, The Word became flesh, that's the incarnation, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so the incarnation, yeah, it is a mystery beyond our understanding. And yet because of his incarnation, Jesus now fulfills the role of our kinsman redeemer. Number two is only Jesus has the means or the, the power uh, or, the, you know, he's the only one that's qualified to redeem me. You see, a kinsman redeemer had to have the means to be a redeemer. In other words, let me say it this way. He had to have the money to buy back the property or even the person that was sold into slavery. And Jesus qualifies because he has plenty of riches to purchase people like us who find ourselves slaves to sin. Aren't you glad there's no such things as recession and pandemics in heaven? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We're reminded in the Bible, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he what? He became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Listen, that's God's grace in action on behalf of you. Grace is the favor that Jesus shows us when he was willing to take all the immeasurable riches he possesses in heaven and spend it all on our redemption. In other words, as, as Paul describes it in, the, in the, his epistles, Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of his heavenly bank account in order to purchase or buy back our redemption. And in the process... Paul says he became, quote, poor so that we might become, quote, rich spiritually and eternally in him. And so do not look to the government to redeem you. It doesn't have the means to be able to do so. Don't look for your job to redeem you. It doesn't have the means to do so. Don't look to your career, to your education. Don't look to your family or friends to redeem you. They can't. They don't have the means either. Only Jesus has the means to purchase our salvation. Only Jesus, number three, is even willing to do this. Willing to redeem me. You see, a man might be a relative, and a man might even have plenty of money, but the third requirement was he had to be willing to fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer. Listen, he might be a wealthy relative, but he could still refuse to buy back the property or person and marry his relative's widow. In fact, the first person in line to be the kinsman and redeemer in the book of Luth actually does this. He refuses. And Boaz is next in line. Jesus qualifies because he was willing to buy back freedom, your freedom from sin. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this about Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be saved, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why is Jesus willing to redeem you? 
Listen, because you were created in the image of God for God's glory of God. And he loves you dearly as God's creation. And then number four, last of all, only Jesus has paid the full price to redeem me. The fourth requirement for a kinsman redeemer was that he had to pay the full price to buy back the property or the person from slavery. And the price of our redemption was too high for anyone else to pay. But at the cross, Jesus paid the price to redeem us from the law, to redeem us from sin and death. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 19 tells us the price Jesus paid for our redemption. Listen to what Peter writes. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from, to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so Jesus is the only one who qualifies to be our kinsman redeemer. Why? Because Jesus took on human flesh. So that he could live among us, dwell among us. He took those human hands and he touched the blind and the brokenhearted. He used those human hands to break the bread that fed 5,000 people and many more than that. But the main reason that Jesus needed a human body was why? So that he could die on the cross for our sins. So that he could die in our place. Hebrews 9.22 says it this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus willingly died in our place and allowed his human hands to be nailed to the cross so that he could purchase you back, so that he could redeem you. And now Jesus extends those nail-pierced hands to you and me, and he says, listen, if you will come to me in faith, I will be your redeemer. I'll rescue you from your sin and give you new life in me. Listen, if a kinsman redeemer, if they are willing to come to the defense of family members in the Old Testament, then God, through his son Jesus, has come to our defense and he has secured our deliverance from sin, and he has obtained our inheritance in heaven. And so now, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we receive by faith the redemption that he accomplished on the cross, do you realize what that gives you? you realize you now have a position in God's family? You now have a place at the Lord's table? You now have an inheritance that is reserved in heaven. This means you have a future and hope that is secure. Nobody can riot and vandalize it. Nobody can steal it away from you. Nobody. We, in fact, we talked about this even last Sunday. This is why we have reason to rejoice, why we have reason to praise, even in the midst of difficult times and duress. Listen again what Peter says about your inheritance in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This means with Jesus, there are no more threats to our inheritance. He secures it finally and fully. And once we are redeemed, this is where it gets really good. Once we receive Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer, once we are redeemed, we can now fulfill God's greater purpose, his missional purpose in our lives. Notice this. The missional purpose of the kinsman redeemer. Let me show it to you in the Old Testament and then how it applies to us today. First of all, in the Old Testament, the promised land was the stage for God's people to proclaim the fame of God's name to all peoples around the world. Man, that began with what we call Father Abraham. Genesis chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. It begins right there. Actually, it begins earlier than that. It begins in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. This is why God redeemed his people from bondage in Egypt. This is why he gave them the promised land as an inheritance. So that they would do what? They would proclaim the fame of God's name to all the other nations of the world, all the other peoples of the world. The promised land in the Old Testament was the stage on which Israel lived out its relationship with the Lord and in relation to each other and to all peoples outside of God's family. And as they lived as God's people, in fact, the wording that Peter and Paul even used, peculiar, different, set apart, which is why God gave them all those laws, those dietary laws, those ceremonial laws, those civil laws. Why? So they would stand out differently from all the other peoples of the world. So they would be peculiar. And it would give them this platform, this stage, to proclaim now the fame of God's name to all the nations. In many ways... God's missional purpose of redemption was centralized where? In the promised land. But now, today, God's missional purpose of redemption, we might say it this way, it is decentralized from God's land to God's church, which is scattered all over the world. So what does this mean for us today? It means this, today the church is the stage for God's people to proclaim the fame of God's name to all peoples around the world. You see, God, listen to me, who wants a people for his name, he has done everything necessary now to redeem such a people through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now we here today who are part of God's church, one of many thousands and thousands of churches across this world, we now bear witness to God's what? Redeeming grace in our own lives. And we do that by what? Proclaiming the fame of God's name. By showing God's grace to others as it has been shown to us. 
This is why Jesus could say in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so the gospel now, all right, we're in Ruth, and it's an example. It's a historical true example of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer, but it is preparing even us, and it is pointing us forward to something much greater Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And now we are in on all of those privileges. And the gospel now, through Jesus as our kinsman redeemer, listen, it is about the triumph of Jesus over sin, over death, over judgment, and yes, over prejudice, over injustice, and over racism. As our redeemer. And the aim of proclaiming this gospel is that all people might know Jesus as their Redeemer, just as we know him as our Redeemer. And so God declares this missional purpose in places like Isaiah 12, 4, where it says, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. We find it again in 67, verses 1 through 4, and I would exhort that this should be the heart cry of our church. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Is that your heart cry? Is that what beats in your heart? Is that your passion? Dads, it's Father's Day, so let me, let me focus on us. Let me ask, is this your heart cry beginning with your family? As fathers, we have a responsibility to proclaim the fame of God's name to our families. And then to our neighbors. And then to our nations. And this means making sure, first of all, that we ourselves know Jesus as our Redeemer. And then living out the gospel to our families. And so like Boaz, may we, as dads, may we show lots and lots of grace in response to experiencing the amazing grace of God. In Jesus Christ. Fathers, that's something to take home today with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, thank you for your goodness and grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, we we confess that we don't always understand your ways. We don't always understand what you are doing. And so help us to simply trust you. And to respond to your invitation with faith. Help us to see that we need to be rescued from our sins and that you have provided a redeemer in Jesus Christ. May you give grace to each father here today as they strive to fulfill their role and responsibility as a dad. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.